From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey everyone, we're here to set things up in a special way for you. This season of The Podvocate, we're hoping to explore one topic in deep detail, and we're ready to set up a series that we think you'll enjoy. This past summer, the Supreme Court overruled years of precedent with the landmark case Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. We hope to spend a number of episodes this season talking about this case. But don't worry, you'll also hear other works from our talented editors. Today, we're setting the groundwork for fair admissions by talking about the cases that brought us here. In a new way of hitting the greatest hits, we're breaking down the stories of three cases that molded and ultimately crumbled affirmative action. Hey, Johannes, how's it going? Hey, Andy, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I really appreciate you jumping in and joining me for today's episode. We're going to do another Greatest Hits episode, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. I feel like I break the rules every single time. Uh, but this is what's nice about this episode is that we are going to uh, follow the same structure. We're going to talk about a really important case, and we're going to talk about the stories behind it. Uh, but instead of talking to just any old law student, we're actually talking to one of our own, one of our editors on the podcast, um, which is you. If you can just introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my name is Johannes Alvarez Rivero. I'm a, uh, a 2L law student at Loyola in Chicago. Let's see. I am a uh, born and raised Latin American man, grew up in, in the Bronx in New York City. Had a short career in the music industry before coming to law school, uh, which is why I thought it was so cool that a, a podcast is run by law students because it's not really what you think law students do. Super exciting and yeah, super thrilled to be on here. So thanks for having me. Great. When we talk about a law school's greatest hit, we usually choose something big. So like uh, the two cases that we've done so far in the last year have been Lawrence v. Texas, which was a, con- a constitutional decision that decided that sodomy laws were, nope, we're not going to do those anymore. Um, and then we also talked about a business law ruling on Citizens United. So this one is going to be in the books someday. It's just not there yet. But we're talking about students for fair admissions versus Harvard. It has a b- bigger name, but this is the one that everybody yeah, knows sure. it for. Yeah. Um, we've got it's it's students for fair admissions versus the president and fellows of Harvard University. I ask everybody this, and this is going to be a little bit different because it's just so recent, is what's your familiarity and understanding and relationship with uh, fair admissions versus Harvard? Sure. I mean, yeah, this case um, this case definitely meant a lot to me and, and, and my community. As I said before, I grew up in a, uh, in a Latin American community and grew up in a family um, where no one, you know, really graduated from college. No one was had opportunities to sort of go into higher education, you know, this meant a lot, This, especially being a law student. You know, you, you heard about this 
and you immediately start to think, you know, am I as a Latin American man is, is, does that mean that my kids one day may not be able to have that same opportunity? So it, it, it meant a lot as a law student. And I definitely, we were trying to keep up with it sort of during a very hectic one L year. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely, uh, it's super influential, I think for everyone at the law school who, and law students nationwide who sort of come from a different background than what usually lawyers have been associated with. I am just going to make the disclaimer here. And we make this disclaimer usually at the top of the episode. The opinions that either of us have is our own opinions. This is not a reflection of Loyola. It's not a reflection of WLUW. This isn't a reflection of our jobs. This is just, you know, we are also two people that are citizens of a system that have has made this decision. So um, sure. we're going to talk candidly about these things. So I think it's important for us to to keep that in mind too, is that we're not necessarily trying to offend anybody. Um, we're not necessarily trying to say that our opinions are are better than someone else's, but there's a lot there. Um, and even yeah. talking as like a white man, I my experience is different. It's just, it, it just is. So, um, so yeah, let's get started. Um, sure. So when we're talking about this case, it's really, it's gonna be really hard to really just talk about the story of students for fair admissions coming to Harvard University and the University of uh, North Carolina and saying, I don't like what you did. Um, because actually those facts are really boring um, right. because there's so much buildup that has been used to get us here. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this actually into two parts. So today we're going to talk about a lot of history related to what brought us here. And then we're going to come back later and we're going to talk about the actual case itself. And that's when we're going to really parse this new, I guess, generation of Supreme Court justices and why they came to the decision that they did um, and some of the opinions and dissents and, and whatever that way. What we're going to have to do is we are going to go way, way back to the 70s. Then we're going to jump into the, the early aughts of the 2000s. And then uh, that'll that'll get us here to to Harvard. Really, when we're talking about this case, when we're talking about these cases, again, we're going back to the 1970s, and probably even before that, just talking about Brown versus Board of Education. Which, you know, if you're familiar with it, this is so understood among everyone. This idea that segregation in education was deemed unfair and bad. And that yep. this whole concept of separate but equal is unconstitutional. And so we need to keep that idea in mind about like segregation and breaking people up into racial groups and how that plays into the three cases that we're going to talk about today, but even when we talk about fair admissions. So right. the first one, the first one we're going to talk about is Regents of the University of California versus Baki. And so what is your relationship with this case? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I know this case uh, sort of from uh, probably the one of the benefits of being a, a very recent 1L student. Um, you know, I know this case pretty well. You know, I, I know it, it really is the fundamental case that brings that sort of brings Brown of education uh, Brown into question. Right. I mean, it brings it, it brings a multifaceted approach to, to what what other considerations are there to separate but equal. So I think, yeah, this is a very, very fundamental case. It's really the start of, of, of the conversation. 
the thing the thing about Baki is that like when I when I think of Brown, I think about like K twelve. I think about like yeah. kids and kids going to school. And when we're talking about Baki, this is like not e- this isn't even undergrad. This is we're talking about like med school and we're talking about like uh, a post post secondary education. And so the facts that we usually hear from this case is that there was a guy that was applying to med school. He didn't get in. He kind of found out that it was because of affirmative action. And so he believed that he was being unnecessarily rejected from these, from these cases because he was a white guy. And the court said, that's kind of silly, but maybe. Um, So we want to talk about the guy in question here. His name is Alan Baki, and that's he's he is the named person in this case. Right. And so he was a military vet at this at this time when it comes to when it comes to SCOTUS is trying to get into med school. And so right. his history is very, very much related to his military service. So he first once he graduates from from college, he then joins the Navy Reserve Officers Training Corps to curb his undergraduate tuition costs. And then he also has his ROTC requirement. So he joins the Marines and he's stationed in Vietnam. And then he gets honorably discharged and he uses his experience in the military to work for NASA. And so it's this, this military background paired with this very highly scientific background that makes him kind of leads him to believe that he wants to enter the field of medicine. And so right. the thing about that is he he takes the MCAT, he does very well on it, and he then starts applying to a bunch of different medical schools. And so in total, he applies to 12 different schools. And the first two that he applies to are the University of Southern California and Northwestern University. And he is rejected from both for the main reason being he is too old. So right. at the time... He is 33 years old, which Got it. from my perspective, that makes me very uncomfortable <laughs> because I am 36 and I was applying to law school four years ago. So that was, that's a thing. Um, but they were basically saying, you're in your thirties, you are an established person. You're going to spend a lot of time in med school and we just don't think it's a good idea for us to accept you. The thing we need to recognize right now is this is before the age discrimination act. And also med schools at the time, it was a very common practice for them to deny students admission based on age. So he gets denied from those two schools, but he's denying to, he's, he's applying to a bunch of others. And one of the final schools he applies to is UC Davis. And he applies really late because on his personal level, I believe it was his mother, his mother-in-law was sick. And so he was taking care of her while also trying to continue applying to to med school. And he believes that applying so late is the thing that probably played the most role in him not getting admitted. Like I said, his scores were above average for all the other people that were applying there. Um, And the thing about UC Davis is they apparently had a special program that I don't know how the special program worked, but basically it was these people admitted into this program can get lower MCAT scores and they're still kind of admitted into the med school program. So he applies, he gets an interview, and when he gets to this interview, he's told that he has this thing in the bag, that 
his interview went really well, that he has a lot of experience, that he he really knows what he's talking about, and they would they would be happy to admit him. So he gets told that he's going at the end of his interview that he's going to be recommended for admission. And two months later, he gets a letter saying that he has been rejected. This is when he kind of runs back to the school and does his like, what What do you mean? What do you mean? So he goes back to the university and he yep. talks specifically, he, he asks specifically for the chairman of admissions to the med school. And to talk specifically about this uh, special admissions program or this, this special program that they have. And the chairman at the time pulls in someone else who's going to be basically his like, kind of like his stand in to, to kind of speak for him and kind of talk about his candidacy and, and try to get him to reapply. And so this, this guy that, that talks to him in the chairman's place really talks about your background is great. The only thing we're really worried about is that you're, you're a little bit older, try again. And I can't see there being a problem. But then, and I don't mean to laugh, I just, because I know the facts, but oh, yeah. laugh is what ends up happening is this Dean that's talking to him then also kind of throws out. And if you don't get admitted again, maybe you should consider legal action. And then kind of gives him some lawyers names. And he's like, if you're really concerned, I know these two lawyers that are interested in affirmative action and that, that could be a problem. And maybe, maybe that's something you can, you can look into. And I like, just knowing that just makes me go, like, oh, <laughs> why would, why, why would you do that? Why? But, um, you know, it, afterwards, like even the general counsel for the university is like, I don't think he wasn't, he was trying to do anything wrong. I think he was just being some guy trying to be helpful and, you know, just throwing out what the options could be. But what ended up happening was when this case was, when this case went to court, this dean was demoted and then fired from the university. But the thing is, not only is it just a funny fact, this is like the trigger that gets this going. So Baki applies again to UC Davis a second time. And in this second interview, he gets two separate interviews. One is by a student and then the other is by the very person, the chairman that he went to initially to, to kind of complain about not getting admitted in the first place. And the student interview goes really, really well. He's told that I'm like, we're going to, I'm going to say that, that your evaluation is great. I think you'd be a great addition. But when he speaks to the chairman of admissions, the chairman of admissions starts asking him very specific questions about kind of his concerns about why he wasn't admitted in the first place. And it turns out in this interview, what happens is uh, Baki starts to talk about his personal feelings about affirmative action and pointedly and very, very specifically says that he, he doesn't think it's fair that there are students who aren't white getting places that he deserves simply right. because he is a person. So because of that, the chairman gives him a low, a poor evaluation. And in all of his admission materials, this is the only thing that really looks bad. He gets rejected a second time. This is when I get really, I feel like the facts get really uncomfortable for me because I, I don't like when people throw these, these ideas around. But what ends up happening is apparently there are these facts that start getting out that there are 
minorities that were accepted into this specific class that had significantly lower academic scores and that they there were applicants who who basically any other way they wouldn't have been admitted but because of this special right. program they got in and i don't in my research i can't find it but it's apparently out there so i'm just calling i'm calling name to it and this is the thing that kind of sets this off so so basically then what happens is he brings this to court and he sure. says that under the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment he was unfairly discriminated against as a white person what do you know about the equal protection clause Ooh. i well, don't mean to put you on the spot um right after the civil war you know it it, it stops or it was intended to stop states from discriminating against uh, namely African-American individuals after the Civil War due to the, you know, uh, unfortunate long history of slavery that our country has had. So, so yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's incredibly integral to our, uh, it, was, it, was, it was the first large legislative change that was aimed at protecting uh, minorities. Right, and that's, that's exactly right. And the thing that I think for me feels like it's hard for us to say that we can use the equal protection clause as an argument for any of these cases um, is the fact that the equal protection clause was made to protect formerly enslaved people from being denied their rights. Um, it's it really what the equal, the language in the equal protection clause says that no state will deny any, uh, any of its citizens, the equal protection under the law pointed specifically for former slaves, but I guess, I mean, we're not always originalist, but sometimes we, we're going to be originalist and we talk about things that, that the framers really wanted and sometimes we don't. But anyway, so what happens is um, when it gets to the court, the, the right. decision is it's a plurality opinion. And for, I mean, we, we would understand this, but for people that really don't nerd out about the law, then I give a plurality <laughs> opinion is that you have, you have a decision that everybody comes to, but nobody comes right. to it from the same, from the same angle, or there are things that everybody can agree to, but not the whole thing. Usually when the Supreme court comes down in an opinion, the majority all agrees on how they got there, what they're talking yep. about, like what the decision is in all pieces. When you've got a plurality opinion, it's really, there's, we all agree to come to the same conclusion, but we don't agree to get, we don't know, we don't necessarily agree on how we got there. Or maybe you're saying some stuff that I don't agree with. This was yeah. an 8-1 decision. So there are nine justices on the court. Eight of them all kind of agreed on the same thing. And that same thing that everybody agreed on was that Baki was unfairly rejected from the University of California. And they all agreed that the University of California should admit him into their med school program. Right. The thing that not everybody agreed on, though, was that Powell did say that this was that affirmative action in general is mm -hmm. is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment. Right. Most of the other justices end up saying that's not true. We think that race can be used in affirmative action very, very narrowly, should be used as a factor of a factor. It's not the, it's not the thing that decides it, right? Right. So right. we get this, we kind of get this idea that we can use race 
but now we've got to kind of back some things up. And this is when we kind of give affirmative action like a really bright line test. So when we're talking about affirmative action, here's the thing. The point of affirmative action in its conception was this idea that there is a past wrong, slavery, racism that needs to be overcome. But because of this opinion, we have to be really careful about why it is we're examining things and talking about race the way that we do. So it becomes this new bargain. And this new bargain is what we call the diversity rationale or the diversity bargain, which was basically we had to give up the idea that affirmative action was used to right a wrong Mm -hmm. and to then kind of refocus affirmative action as a way to say race is something that we're going to consider because diversity is the thing that benefits everybody. What the argument kind of around it is when we, when we talk about writing a past wrong, we're only focused on one group of people and that (laughs) the courts hate that courts really do hate that. Um, But what, if we, if we can talk about it from a diversity perspective, that hits everybody. We can talk about white people, black people, brown people, yellow people. We can talk about everybody. And that's why we can make this bargain. Race is one factor. It's just not a deciding factor. This is the way that it is. Curious from your perspective, is this a fair trade? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's, I'm I'm glad you brought up the context behind what was going on, but I think even more common, you're, you're looking at a decision that's being discussed 10 years after the end of the civil rights movement, which, which really was, you know, obviously a big moment in our history and, and a significant victory for human rights, but was also, you know, not popular. And I think, you know, in many ways, we talk about what's going on in, in modern politics as, to, as a sort of a sort of revenge, right, for, 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 the, for the, the things we've managed to move forward in the last sort of 10 years. Um, and, and I think in, in some ways, this can be looked at as, as some form of revenge. I mean, and, and we look at it like, you know, this is a, a individual who clearly has a storied history of, uh, you know, he has a, his, you know, uh, he's a veteran. He has this sort of significant resume. And, you know, I, I think someone has to look at this and be like, well, this really feels like a lashing back at the advancements that had been done. I mean, and, and it's also important to understand that the, the, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was back in 1868. I mean, you're talking about over 100 years later, you know, we're having a conversation about whether racial discrimination can still be allowed in schools. And then now, you know, 10 years after that, or 20 years after that, we're having a conversation about um, how to control it so that it's, it's, it's not giving them almost too much too fast. And I, and I think what, what bothered me the most, I, I remember reading the opinion from Justice Powell, who, again, you, you know, there, there's this inherent belief that if a decision is made, um, that it must be some, you know, it must be a sort of a, if, it, if a decision is made against minorities, it must be some conservative justice who didn't really have a a grasp and you know justice powell grew up in virginia he was a democratic justice he you know this is someone who was supposed to represent the democratic party at the time and you know this is someone who very openly said that all racial and ethnic classifications are suspect you know he went on to say that uh the framers didn't intend to only apply to racial minorities when as we just discussed um, I think that was exactly what the framers intended to do um, when it was enacted in, in 1868. 
Um, and then, I, you know, I think what's especially and what especially stuck me about this case is you have the, you know, the, the, the justice writing the opinion, which which in reality is the opinion that's going to go down in history, sort of saying that um, he wrote that the, the argument that the white majority is preferred in society and is thus less susceptible to the evils of racial classifications is unpersuasive. So essentially stating um, that saying that the white majority um, is less sort of able to be the victims of racist abuse is 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 unbel- is is somehow unbelievable when this justice had right. lived through the civil rights movement. So it, it's it's disturbing and it's it's a it's um it's a bad start and I and I think it it it, it as you said it it frames the next um you know it frames the next fifty years of decisions in in, in this in this realm. Right, right, and for me. I, I can say this now in 2023. I mean, I don't even know if I, I could have argued this in the 90s or, or before, but it just, I think part of, for me, what feels gross about this bargain is that everybody's being disingenuous. It kind of, it kind of feels that way to me that like the, there's, there's the people in favor of affirmative action being disingenuous about why we're doing affirmative action. You know, the whole point of affirmative action is it's almost like a reparation. It's almost like a way of saying we recognize that we screwed up as a country. And so we want to right this wrong. But then we also have, you know, the other side that's saying we don't like affirmative action and they're being disingenuous about why they're, you know, it's, there's a very racist reason why, but what they're saying is it just doesn't help everybody. We need something that helps everybody. And so that's, that's just my personal. That's that's my personal. Oh, don't, and I and I think it, it's important also. It. Yeah, no, I think it's important also mention that that at the time, I mean, you're, the the policy was sixteen out of a hundred students need to be uh, of of a minority, and at the time, you know, you have, you know, about twelve percent of the population is African American at that time. About six percent right. of the population is Latin American. So just right. by those two populations alone you're you're meeting that 16 out of 100 people um and that's not right. taking into consideration the vast majority of other minorities you have in this country so you know it's when you're looking back at it you're thinking like you know there, there's this is this idea that we should have schools look like our communities and even right. at that time the community looked like uh it looked more diverse than what this school was allowing to have um so yeah it it, it definitely feels like uh like a like a lashing against the progressions that we had made uh, to protect against this type of sort of this type of discrimination. So, right. But, but we do get the Baki affirmative, affirmative action, bright line test. Now we know, right. we know when we can use it. We know why we, why we use it. And it doesn't get challenged until 2003 when we hit Gruder versus Bollinger. And that is when Baki tends to lose its teeth and the other thing that I'm going to start noticing is we're, we're going to fly through these next two cases, not because time or anything like that, but simply because the, the information is so limited because we now have a very limited reason why we use this stuff. And so right. bringing it all the way up to the Supreme Court, I mean, we have a limited idea of what's going on here, but we're using the analysis becomes so complicated because it's so right. narrow. So when we're talking about Gruder, we have, we're jumping to 1997. So now here we are like 20 years later, 
almost 30 years later. And there's a woman by the name of Barbara Gruder who applies to the University of Michigan Law School, right? And so she applies and her, I would argue she's probably more impressive than um, Baki was to <laughs> so law school, yeah. but, um, but she has a 3.8 GPA and an LSAT of 161, which those of you that don't understand, that's insane. Very high, um, very high. But she, but she, um, she applies to, to University of Michigan and she's denied. And so what ends up happening there is she goes back and she basically files suit against the university. And she says specifically that this was, she was discriminated because she was a white woman, um, which is a violation of the 14th Amendment. But then she also throws in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VI, just very, very broad strokes. The 14th Amendment is like the government. Like we're, when we are, when we are a public entity, you have to follow this. Like you are following because you are essentially as a public entity, you are an arm of the government. And so you need to follow these rules. When we're talking about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, this is focused more on private institutions and private institutions that are receiving federal funds. So they may not be a specific arm of the government, but they are they're an entity that is receiving money from the government. And in Title VI, there is a provision that says if you're receiving these federal funds, you cannot discriminate based on race, period. So she throws both of these options at the wall and, and, and tries to get them to stick. So basically saying that the law school uh, denied her because they have this system in place that uses race as the predominant factor of admitting individuals. Right. And this was the reason why she was, she was denied. This is when it gets really sticky because the University of Michigan comes back and says, well, kinda. And they really do admit to their admissions practices in which they specifically use race as a factor in admitting students into the law school. Right. So the way that they describe it is that using race as a factor is a compelling interest in achieving diversity among its student body. And if we think back to Baki, the whole point was you're, if you're going to use race, it has to be for diversity and it has to be a way that, that benefits everybody, which is what they're, which is what uni the university of Michigan is trying to say. Um, and they use this phrase that they're saying, you know, we, we do this as a way to reach a critical mass of our populations and, and the students that come to our school. What ends up happening is the, the lower district courts then kind of say that, yes, it's important. Like, we recognize your, your means of achieving diversity, but uh, it's the way that you're doing it is a little bit suspect. And they come to this conclusion that says, when you use the word critical mass, you're really just using the word quota and giving it like a fancy coat of paint so it doesn't look that way. Um, and because the thing is, if we're, using, if we're using a quota, that means that we are reserving seats for someone of a particular type. Right. And that's a problem. <laughs> Uh, is what Baki told us is that that is a problem. We don't want to do that. So, so yeah, so then it goes 
it goes up to SCOTUS. And really the question is, is Michigan law schools, racial preferences, violations of the Equal Protection Clause, or are they violations of Title VI? The court in a 5-4 decision says, no, it is not. This is where I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, but uh, we've got the opinion delivered by uh, Justice O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor has the first woman on the court. She was placed by, by a Republican. She has a very, she's, you know, kind of this champion of, of the conservative movement. But the thing, my thing about Sandra Day O'Connor, and maybe I'll look back on this when we're editing and take this out, <laughs> but I feel like Sandra Day O'Connor, when it comes to issues that are at kind of the forefront of, how do I want to put this? Like are, are at the forefront of social issues and, and are very favorably viewed by the by the public, she takes the opportunity to latch onto that and be on the right side of history, whether or not she agrees with it. Because I feel like she does this in the opinion. Never mind that, but this idea that she throws out this idea that no, it doesn't it doesn't violate Title VI, it doesn't violate the Equal Protection Clause. And the reason is they have a they have an interest in bringing in as many individuals as they can who are going to, um, you know, get a good education and are going to reflect their population. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But then she does she does her Sandra Day O'Connor dance. Um, she does this also in Lawrence versus Texas, where. She throws out this idea that, like, yes, I agree with I agree with the majority, and I agree with this idea, this this very um, socially progressive idea, and and then kind of throws a little bit of flavor at it. And in this case, she's like, race conscious admissions isn't hurting non minority applicants. It's going to be so helpful that maybe in fifty years we're not going to need it yeah. anymore. In Lawrence versus Texas, she says, you know, sodomy laws are for specific people are bad, but sodomy laws for everybody are fine. And so this is just another example of that, in, in my opinion. Right. But um, but but still, you know, it 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 gets upheld that the University of Michigan was doing everything right. Um, however, it does lose a little bit of its teeth and they kind of they kind of grind it down to be a little bit more narrow than it was. For one, they were like, get rid of that critical mass idea. It doesn't make sense. Um, but also, I don't. I can't speak to whether or not it shows up in the opinion or if this is just what the people decide. But not long after this opinion is uh, decided on, Michigan then has an election. And in that next election, they put on the ballot whether or not the state should just completely get rid of affirmative action in its institutions. And the citizens decide that no more affirmative action. So actually in the state of Michigan, you can't have affirmative action period. But I just I just found that to be interesting. There right. are nine other states in the United States that do not have affirmative action laws. So there, Baki loses its teeth. Yes. And then just a few years later, a girl, an 18 year old girl by the name of Abigail Fisher is living in Texas and graduating from high school and applies to the University of Texas, and she gets denied admission to the University of Texas. Um, so this is the case of Fisher 
versus University of Texas. How are you familiar with this one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like we obviously know prior to 1996, uh, the University of Texas, um, they considered race as a factor. It was one of the two factors used. Um, but in 1996, that was held as unconstitutional in a separate case. Um, so that sort of gives the, the backdrop of, of what happens here. And then the university sort of throws that away um, and adopts a new sort of the state legislature adopts a new statute, which which is this top 10 percent law. Right. Which which sort of all you get automatic admission to a public school in Texas if you're in the top 10 percent of your class in, in, in high school in Texas. Um, and again, it was revised because the university determines that there's not a critical mass as, as sort of was determined in, in the last case. Um, and therefore it, you, the university comes up with this, this updated program where you consider academics, you consider test scores, you consider personal achievement. Um, and as a part of that personal achievement, you get this race consideration. And, and, and this is where the conversation about where, well, what does, personal achievement mean as it pertains to race. Um, and it was not given a numerical value, but as evident in the in the sort of the reason this case was brought and, and considering that she seemed to be a high, high qualified applicant, it was a very important factor. Um, and you have this woman applying for Michigan University uh, who is a Caucasian woman and is denied. Um, now, you know, I think it's one of the things that I remember from this case is I believe Texas is one of the most popular schools in the country. I, I think it's well over 30,000 students that apply for admission. Right. Um, and, you know, you have what, uh, you know, a third of that that maybe gets in. So it's, you know, it's not mm -hmm. exactly as an easy school to get into in the first place. But I, I do know okay. that sort of that when she found out about that policy, that that was, of course, when she's brought suit. Right. No, that's exactly right. And I'm glad that you brought up that whole 10% um, rule. So yeah, in 1997, uh, they enacted this law that like anybody in the state of Texas that went to a public high school, um, if they were in the top 10% of their class, they were automatically admitted into the University of Texas if they wanted to. Hmm. And this was, uh, it was a way to be very like what, what we call facially neutral. Is yeah. that it, that race isn't a part of it but it's um, it's going to inevitably play a role. It's going to have an impact. And so the impact of this race-neutral race admissions law was uh, it, it was getting students from uh, maybe lower-performing schools into this highly sought-after place in Texas. But back to when we're talking about Abigail Fisher specifically, you know, like you said, you know, we have this, this Caucasian female... Um, who applies for admission uh, in 2008. And what happens then is she um, is not in the top 10% of her class. Um, okay. And so she, her competition was with everybody else who was not in the top 10% of the class or, or of, of their class in the state. Um, right. And her admission scores were fine. They were, I mean, it wasn't necessarily like she was, she was getting, she was at the top of, of anything. She was, she was pretty middle of the road, which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, but she was denied admission 
to uh, University of Texas. And according, the legend has it that uh, the day she found out, she called a lawyer and said, I was discriminated against because I was a white person. And okay. that, uh, that those, them's fighting words, that, that kind of leads us to this, this next, this next thing. And yeah. this is where she gets, it, it kind of goes back to similarly when we're talking about Baki, like she's, she kind of becomes a national figurehead for uh, the anti-affirmative action movement. Um, she's going on like national TV interviews and she's making these claims. And some of those claims are things like there were, I know all the people that were admitted at my school and there were people who were admitted who had much lower SAT scores than me, who had much worse grades and they were only admitted because they were minorities. And that again is a little bit fishy. Um, I don't have the specific numbers in front of me, but I believe it was like somewhere in like the mid forties where this, where the amount of students that were accepted and only like seven of them were minority mm. students. So to make that claim is, oh, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, it doesn't scratch the right itch, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, right. So either way, no matter what she's saying, how this, how this plays out, it does make its way to the Supreme Court again. And what we, what the question happens here is, you know, we've got Fisher saying, I was discriminated because I was a white person. And the university is throwing out this thing that, you know, we're using race as a, as like a percent of a percent. We're, right. we're, we're following the rules. We're trying to, we're trying to promote diversity. I don't know what the problem is. So again, we come back to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And yep. the question is, does the Equal Protection Law of the 14th Amendment permit considerations of race in undergraduate admissions? So in this case, we're not looking at like Baki or even like, um, even like Gruder. Those two cases we're saying was this school's application of using race unconstitutional. Here, they're finally saying like, if we're going to use the equal protection clause analysis, is this, can colleges, are, are colleges violating that? Right. And surprisingly enough, uh, the results of this end up, we have a seven to one decision that, um, yes, you can permit the consideration of race when you are admitting students into undergraduate institutions. There were two justices that did not join that majority, one being Justice Elena Kagan, because she had, uh, before coming to SCOTUS, had, been, uh, had decided on, I think, something related to this case or something related to um, the 10% rule or something with UT. So she recused herself. And the only person who dissented was our good friend, rest in peace, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, yep. But we will get to we will get to her dissent in a second. What the majority basically decides is like, no, this is not this is not an example of a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. You are allowed to do this. Um, you know, they're they're saying that when we talk about cases reviewed under the Fourteenth Amendment. 
they need to be reviewed under strict scrutiny and they need to be policies that are so precisely tailored to a compelling government interest that they are okay. This seems to be one of those things that has lived up to that standard. Um, They say race may not be considered in just admitting them. The constitution prohibits governmental discrimination on the basis of race. However, um, because this, they didn't ask the court to overrule precedent, they just kind of basically said, you know, what's the compelling government interest when we're talking about race-based admissions policies? So the thing that makes this interesting too is you have, um, you have justices like Justice Clarence Thomas, who at the time was the only black man, the only black individual on the court. Yep. And he did a lot of arguments about saying, you know, like, I don't know if I necessarily think this is a good idea. I think when we when we start doing affirmative action, he starts throwing out some of these ideas about, you know, when we use affirmative action, we are kind of siding with segregationists. And they kind of argued these same points. And uh, this is this is a problem. And I find that interesting. Um, and I think yeah. in my own armchair sociologist's perspective, I think he has a has a feeling that if we cling too much to affirmative action, anyone who falls under a minority is kind of viewed as undeserving of the, the things that they get. Right. Um, and what I find really interesting about this case too is that in the sole dissent by Justice Ginsburg, um, she kind of brings it back to kind of like the point I was making at the beginning, which was she doesn't understand why we are shying away from this idea or like putting fluffy language around race-based institutions and race-based, race-based admissions. And we should think about it the way that it is. This is a reparation for harms that have been caused by our, in our past. And we need to, we need to be honest about that. Right. Um, so yeah, I just think really kind of what ends up happening here is it, it, scares a lot of judiciaries. It scares a lot of legislators into changing laws around and being a little bit more strict about their, um, about their admission standards. So, right. Yeah. And I think when, one thing I, I think is, is worth bringing up is like, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, Supreme court shouldn't be advocates. They shouldn't, they're not, not their, their job is not to push policy. It's to interpret policy. And, and I think, What's especially troubling about Justice Thomas's concurrence is he calls out Grutter as being a, an incorrect decision. And yes, when, when that's not really the, you know, you don't see the other judges, you know, other than Scalia, but I mean, Scalia's in the exact same boat. You, you don't, you, you don't talk, the other judges are not even discussing overruling Grutter. It's, well, this is the Grutter framework. And you even see the majority opinion uses the Grutter framework to get to its conclusion whether or not it's the right conclusion i mean when you look at ginsburg she applies it perfectly saying like you said i don't understand why we're going through this whole process where the case has to be remanded again and now go through the whole strict scrutiny process that was already applied this this program fits it we're good to go but you have thomas sort of out of the blue and scalia sort of saying that almost in in my opinion almost begging someone to challenge grutter again um 
and, and you know, and, and they know that this current court, the way that the current court was, the court was framed in 2000, uh, 2013 is, you know, it's not a court that's going to uh, overrule Grutter, but it, they, they know that in the future, there may be an opportunity. And this is, you know, they're not the one thing I will give these justices credit is they're not, they're not dumb people and they're clearly very intelligent people. And the, right. the problem is they know very well that writing in an opinion that something should be overruled means that that can, language can be used again in a future case to sort of show that a Supreme court justice thought that a case was, was incorrect. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of the, the scary part of, of the, of the concurrences is, is you're looking at two justices who are siding with the majority, but at the same time calling for the overruling of one of the most fundamental cases in our judicial system. So, you know, it's, it, that, that, that's significant. It's that uh, Supreme court two-step that, that seems to be happening yeah. a lot. That's the We're very good at that. We set yeah. it up and then we, and then we do something about it. That happens. Uh, Justice Roberts is an expert at doing that. Um, but yeah, so, that's that's the history and i gotta tell you we've been talking for like an hour and so we've got we've got a lot more to talk about so uh what we're going to do is we are going to take a pause we are going to come back and we are going to talk about we've paved the path so here here is equal protection framework here is what the government has what scotus has decided is fair admissions and then we get to the actual group fair admissions uh, students for Fair Admissions saying that Harvard and the University of North Carolina are not doing their jobs. Um, and so we will talk about that next time. So Johannes, I am really grateful to be able to have sat down with you. I really had a good time talking with you. Yeah. Um, I hope you were <laughs> you were fine uh, just listening to me throw a bunch of history at you, but that's, that's what I do. Oh, I loved it. Thanks for having me. And um... I'm sure we're giving one else nightmares, so uh, I'm I'm happy to happy to keep keep it going, or very much confusing them. And I'm yes, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> probably <laughs> there's that too. So all right, all right, that's it. That's all from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Neka Ugu and me, Andy Vandenbush. Our senior editors are Casey Callahan and Marcus McNeil. Our associate editors are Ben Recht, Karan Kaushal, Maris Medina, and Johannes Alvarez-Rivero. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.